you can make a decision to put a portion of that emergency fund in an investment vehicle for the next 18 months as a means to get through this unprecedented time without making it mean that you were doing something wrong before or that you're going to keep it this way forever. It simply means that you're acting on new information. And I think that's part of the reason why these conversations can be so hard because we learn about money and how to make good decisions and we call ourselves financially literate. Mm-hmm. But when things change and we need to make different decisions, it almost feels like a threat to our literacy or a departure from like this knowledge base that we've worked so hard to build. But it is so necessary. I think we say this almost every episode, but the world is changing at a rapid pace and a lot of financial stability will be based on our ability to adapt to that change and welcome it. And so don't be afraid to make a decision that is temporary and then change your mind. (laughs) That's going to be an ongoing part of the relationship between you and your money as we live in one of the most unstable times in U.S. history. I'm tempted to coin the term financial courage. Oh, there you go. There it is. You need some financial courage. It's not necessarily a departure from your understanding. It's really a reaction based on your understanding of what's happening in the world. Right. Welcome to the Rich and Regular Podcast presented by Success, where we explore life at the intersection of money. I'm Kirsten. And I'm Julian. And today we're talking about things you should be talking about. (laughs) I'm I'm not really sure what's very meta title of this podcast will be, but the point is it's April. It's still April 2022, which means it's still Financial Literacy Month. And so far we've covered like a couple of like educational style topics. I think we dove into business structures a little bit. We were talking about LLCs. We got the question from uh, one of our listeners. So we dove into that. Uh, And then most recently we tackled upskilling so that you can help, so that we can help you earn more money. But today we're going to dive deeper. Well, I shouldn't say we'll dive deep. We're actually going to dive shallow into five (laughs) different financial conversations that you need to be having right now. Yeah, and I think this is important because the word personal and personal finance does a lot of heavy lifting, even though for many of us, our finances are more of like a group project, right? So the decisions may be personal, but the consequences and the outcomes of those decisions are very much shared among family and loved ones and your community, particularly if you're a first generation wealth builder or even a member of like the sandwich generation where you're responsible for caring for both your aging parents and your growing children. It's kind of one of the reasons why our mission for Rich and Regular is to inspire better conversations about money. Yeah, and we've given a lot of thought around what it means to inspire better conversations about money. And I think part of it is just showing what it looks like, what Mm -hmm. it sounds like. And so in our video series, Money on the Table, that was at the heart of it, right? It was like, if we could show people what a comprehensive conversation about money and life and all of the other things that surround it are, then we might be able to help other people uh, do the same thing or inspire them to tackle that conversation with a partner or loved one. Or maybe they just need to have that conversation with themselves. And we also try to do the same thing here with our podcast with a little bit of back and forth. And so hopefully you can get a five for one discount on one podcast uh, by (laughs) diving into five different topics that uh, you could start a conversation or have a conversation about starting today. All right. So let's jump in and start with the heaviest one first. Okay. (laughs) The first conversation you should be having right now is around estate planning. Yeah. And the reason this is heavy is because Time Magazine just published an article that 
2021 was actually the deadliest year in U.S. history. Wow. Across all of our wars, plagues, all kinds of stuff. 2021 was actually the deadliest year. And it was shocking to a lot of experts because they assumed that 2020 would have been the peak. Because in 2021, we had way more information. We had access to vaccines. We thought we would come out of it kind of better than we did. And it's sad, but it's important because the financial implications of death to a family that is left behind, particularly death that was unexpected, which a lot of it is, really shouldn't be understated. And we've talked about estate planning before on this podcast, and we even have an entire blog post about our own experience creating our trust online through a company called Trust and Will. But we want to stress again that you should be talking to your loved ones, specifically those who are beneficiaries of any of your accounts, about where the important documents are, where they may be stored, and then updating them on any key points of contacts or any changes that you make within these accounts. This can be as simple as, hey, Ma, did you know you're listed as the beneficiary on our health savings account in case something happens, right? And you can keep going if it's important to you that your mother knows the details like I am. I would say something like, it's an account that we invest in monthly just in case we have any unexpected medical bills. But if we don't spend it on healthcare, we plan to use it as a retirement account. And if we don't make it to retirement, then it's something that you will be given in, you know, in case something happens to us. Yeah. But I just know that sometimes it feels like a will or having these conversations is something that only super rich people should do or only things that you should do when you have like a million dollars in an account. Yeah. But even if you have five or six thousand dollars, anyone who has any personal and or business assets should have a will or be prepared to have conversations with people who are beneficiaries of those assets so that they can be prepared for them and they can act in accordance to your wishes without any kind of dispute or delay. Yeah. And I think it's, it's also just fear, right? Yeah. Well, I was, I wasn't saying that kind of fear, but I was getting ready to say that it's fair to understand why people might delay that conversation. Right. You don't want to have a conversation about death. Uh, It's not a very uplifting kind of thing. It's not a good, feel-good conversation. There's never a good time to have it. But I will say one of the things from personal experience um, that worked for us is to just put it on the calendar, right? right? Now, granted, you're still going to have to fight the urge to push that conversation, but if you put it on the calendar, you give people enough time to sort of warm up to the idea. They can look at it. You can, you know, even decide that, you know what, let's just go ahead and knock it out. Right. But yeah. you at least give people an opportunity to say, hey, this is a conversation we need to have at some point. I'm giving us some time to sort of warm up to it, collect any information that we need to so that we can make that conversation productive. So we just wanted to make sure that this was a reminder so that none of you guys are falling victim to continuing to kick that can uh, down the line. And then when something happens, you're forced to deal with financial issues on top of grieving. Uh, There's another way, though, to protect your family aside from trusts and wills or estate planning, and that's through life insurance policies. And there are many different types of life insurance, but the one we recommend is the simplest one, is a simple term life insurance policy. Basically, a term life insurance policy guarantees payment of a death benefit to your beneficiaries if you die during a specific term. For example, from now now until you're, let's say, 75, you can get that specific. Term policies don't feature a savings component like whole life products, and they contain no value other than the guaranteed death benefit. Um, but they're still really, really helpful. And at the end of the day, most people 
would be benefited greatly from let even just right. say like a fifty thousand or a hundred thousand dollar policy, right? That solves a lot of problems and certainly should be more than enough to cover like the cost of a funeral or anything mm-hmm. like that. Um, there are a lot of companies out there that are offering access to term policies as an employee benefit. We used to have that when we were traditionally employed. So our old employer basically would match one year of your full salary as an employee benefit, which we thought was great. We still took it upon ourselves to have a supplemental policy, which is totally up to you. You don't have to do that. We just want to make sure that if you leave that company, you understand that you have the option to carry that forward, but you're going to have to pay for it, which is going to be far more expensive, obviously, than what you would have gotten um, as an employee. So you definitely want to be mindful of that. If you're bouncing around and you're jumping jobs, most people tend to leave that as like one of the, it's like the classic forgotten benefit. Right. It's like, I don't really need that one. I want to focus on medical insurance or dental vision, those kinds of things. So we just want to make sure that you guys are mindful of that. Um, some employers offers it, some employers offer it, some don't. Um, last thing, I'm not sure if you mentioned this, but we also have an episode of Money on the Table. That's our video series that is completely dedicated to estate planning. It's season two, episode two. We spent some time with some wonderful couples and some family. We visited Houston, Texas. We had an amazing meal. Uh, So definitely check that out if you're looking for a little bit of um, inspiration. Yeah. I think it's important to bring up the fact that a lot of life insurance policies are tied to employers because so many people have either shifted jobs or been let go over these last few years. So that's a great conversation starter. If your partner or your parent has changed jobs, you might want to just bring it up and say, did you have a life insurance benefit at work? Because, you know, if you've left, that may not be the case anymore and you could be out here with no insurance. So you can say... You know, are you thinking about replacing the policy? And if they're on the fence, just suggest that it's worth their time to get a couple of quotes. They can do that through their existing homeowners or car insurance company, or they can use a site like Policy Genius to just look at what life insurance would cost them at their age, um, given, you know, their health background. Yep. All right. The second conversation you should be having with your loved ones is about home ownership and whether to sell or keep your elderly family member's home. And I say elderly, but it doesn't necessarily have to be right. elderly. It could be any family member's home. But I think this has been a age-old debate about whether to sell or keep grandma's house or your you know, Aunt Hazel's house, particularly in communities of color and low-income families. And quite honestly, there are a lot of variables to consider with no objectively right or wrong answer. Yep. But revisiting this topic now is important because of the frenzy of the housing market. Demand for homes is high, which means property values are inflated, which means that property taxes are also much higher. So I've seen people talking about two and 300 percent increases in tax bills. And if you have members of the family who are living with fixed incomes, that tax bill could be crushing on top of all of the other rising costs. And the consequences we've shared before with you all. The consequences of not paying your tax bills could result in you losing the property altogether and seeing all of the equity go down the drain. So it is super important to find the courage to have the conversation with your relatives, again, particularly those who are low income or on fixed income, about the total cost of ownership of their house. Yeah, property taxes is one of those things that, um, gosh, it's almost like a... 
I hate to, you know, I hate using that parallel, but it's like the cancer of real estate. You know, yeah. it just like sneaks up on people. Um, it's there, but it's just so easily forgotten. And part of it is that the process of communicating between county and city and state can be so clunky sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's easy for information to get lost, especially when you're dealing with, in many cases, older people, and it just gets thrown in there with a bunch of mail. I mean, we don't check the mail every single day mm-hmm. anymore. Our parents used to, but I mean. If you're lucky, there, there might be one of maybe 50 pieces of oh, mail yeah. in there. If crazy. it's coming from the government, it looks so simple. Like, you know, you can just throw it away. It could look like anything, right? Uh, and so this information, unfortunately, gets lost. And um, this is something that a lot of institutions and real estate investors know, and they kind of take advantage of how clunky that system is. And so you definitely want to make sure that this isn't something that's happening to anyone in your family, which is really just a matter of having that conversation, which is why we're talking about it today. So a couple of the types of conversations that you should be having. Um, One of them is just straight up direct, right? Ask about the property taxes year over year, just like you would ask, how are you doing? Is your medication changed? Or what are the other things that you might be dealing with or struggling with? Ask about, hey, have you followed up and made sure that you paid your property taxes? If you're not getting a straight answer, the good news is you can actually just look this information up. So most cities, I believe, municipalities and counties, you can just go to your city website, log in, type in the address. In some cases, they may need like a lot number, but you can find that by finding the address or by searching by someone's last name, and then you should be able to find out whether or not they're delinquent or not. Again, this is information that a lot of real estate investors rely on because that's how they know when a property might be good to submit like an offer, an Mm all-cash offer, and say, hey, it looks like you're running behind. We'd be happy to take this off your hands. You do not want to be in that situation. Um, Another one you want to have is checking with your loved ones to see whether or not like that's the plan. I think we like to think that there's a plan and people like to say, well, the plan is to keep it in the family. But the question you should be asking is, well, can I see the plan? Is there a plan or are we just saying that this is something that we would like to do? And why exactly are we holding onto this property? I know that there's a lot of romance associated to holding onto the property. But the reality is, while it may be great for memories and your parents, or maybe even you may have spent your summers there. I know tons of people who have um, family members that they visit uh, or used to visit in the South or wherever they are in the Midwest and they own these homes. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the property is going to be really valuable someday. Mm-hmm. Even if you're hearing stories and there's been press about someone uh, wanting to build there or doing all those things, like those things take a long time, like maybe sometimes 10, 15, or 20 years. And so it may not necessarily be worth holding on to it. And it's totally okay to sell. I remind people all this time, if you've ever bought property, if you've ever bought a home, that means somebody sold, right. right? That doesn't mean that someone always had like a moral failure or that they just weren't savvy. Like that's part of the process. In order right. to buy, in most cases, someone needs to sell. And so you shouldn't feel like, hey, selling is a bad thing. Obviously, there can be a bit of an emotional connection there, but you just want to make sure you're not subscribing to this belief or this romantic idea. Uh, and we want to make sure we're reminding you guys to sort of do your homework, make sure that you're not forced to make that decision so that if you do decide to sell, you're doing it from a place of empowerment. And I know it can be tough because you can hit a brick wall, particularly with older family members who have a lot of pride in their home and 
don't want to talk about letting it go at all. So there are some conversations you can be having outside of your loved ones to also accomplish the same thing. So you can be talking to your local or state government officials to see if there's any sort of relief programs that you can apply for on their behalf. Sometimes cities and counties will have programs that will kind of cap the amount of uh, taxes that you pay in a given year based on rising home costs, and that might be income-based or, or, or location-based. It just kind of depends on where you are. Or you can be having conversations with other loved ones in the family. You can just say that you see this being an issue, and maybe we all need to band together to create a separate savings account so that when it comes up, we have a plan to mitigate you know, things escalating and possibly getting a lien on the home. Yeah. So you can still be having conversations even if you're not making any kind of headway with the the occupant of the home in question. All right. So the third conversation we think you need to be having right now is about finding the right balance between saving and investing. Yeah. And the urgency behind this conversation is really being driven by inflation. So we meet people all the time who assume they're doing okay financially because they're great savers. They have cash in the bank. They got cash in savings account. They even have some emergency cash and a shoebox around the house in case an apocalypse happens. And they're not wrong. Saving is a huge part of building healthy financial habits. But, and this is a big old but. Oh, yeah. (laughs) In times of hyperinflation, we have to find the right balance between protecting our future spending power by putting our money in places where it outpaces inflation. Yeah. So you guys know me. I'm not a huge fan of rules of thumb, but um, I, I'll, I'll allow this one. So the general rule of thumb around inflation is to budget or anticipate around 3% a year, which is why even though the S&P has produced around 10% returns over the last few decades, most analysts will advise that you can expect around 7% because they're accounting for inflation and the actual spending power of those dollars. Uh, so the average savings account right now pays around 0.06% interest, so less than 1%. Uh, and even a high-yield savings account these days, it doesn't even sound right calling it a high-yield. <laughs> right. A uh, high-yield savings account these days is paying 0.04%. And so when we see reports that are suggesting, and this is as of last week, that inflation is up 8.5% year over year, I know that everyone is feeling the squeeze right now. Like you really need to be looking at different places to store your savings or your cash. And I think if you already have a bunch of money and it's in an emergency fund and it's just sitting in a high yield savings account, Personally, I don't think that that's necessarily a reason to like be moved to take action, but you, there are things that you can do, and certainly from an investment standpoint, that you can um, sort of tweak to make sure that you're not fully losing out or um, watching your money be devalued due to inflation. Right. Um, but this is more so for people, I think, who are in the process of building up an emergency savings account right now or whatever you want to call it, a cash runway, whatever it is, you want to be mindful of where you're saving it right now and what the interest rate is in whatever you're storing it compared to what the actual inflation rate is right now. So for example, when we think about our emergency fund, 75% of it is actually stored in a taxable brokerage account Mm -hmm. and it's like fully invested in total stock market index funds. We uh, do not recommend that for everyone. 
everyone, right? Mm-hmm. The reason why we do that because we're far more comfortable with the amount of income that we earn. Uh, and so we're not nearly as um, tight or prescriptive, I think, as most people would need to be. So I would say for most folks, you really want to look at much more stabler accounts because right now the total stock market uh, is fund or the total stock market as a whole isn't really doing nearly as well. But we're not necessarily worried about that because that money is going to be sitting there for a while. Um, but if you're looking for something that is less risky than an index fund, you should actually really be looking at I-bonds. Um, I think we saw an article that came out today, the day I was recording this podcast, that I-bonds uh, were actually paying 10%, which sounds wild. <laughs> right. But I have to remind myself, the last time I saw numbers like that was in the 1980s. Right. And when we think about that, and I say that literally because one of my earliest financial memories was sneaking into a closet and seeing that my mom had like some treasury bonds and stuff like mm-hmm. that, some government issued treasury bonds. Uh, and I was just, I thought it was money. I had no idea what it was. It wasn't until years later that I actually learned exactly what it is. But all of that to say, if you're looking for a place to store your cash or and you want to invest it, you can look at things like I bonds right now because they're actually paying 10 percent interest. Again, bear in mind what the inflation rate is right, right now. So you're Which not saying, oh my gosh, 10%. That's almost like the average stock market return. Yeah. Factor in inflation, right? So what we're really saying there is about a point and a half, right? right? Relative to what the cost of goods are right now. So yeah. something to consider. I'll link to the article about I-bonds in the show notes because I think it's really interesting about why it's paying out so much given the inflation rates. But I also think that the conversation about how much cash on hand is enough cash on hand is a really important conversation. And that you need to keep in mind that any conclusions that you reach don't have to be permanent. So a lot of us have more cash on hand right now in the last three years than we would have had five years ago because things have been so volatile. doesn't mean that we'll always have you know, six to nine months of expenses on hand or 12 to 18 months, whatever you're comfortable with, you can make a decision to put a portion of that emergency fund in an investment vehicle for the next 18 months as a means to get through this unprecedented time without making it mean that you were doing something wrong before or that you're going to keep it this way forever. It simply means that you're acting on new information. And I think that's part of the reason why these conversations can be so hard, because we learn about money and how to make good decisions and we call ourselves financially literate. Mm -hmm. But when things change and we need to make different decisions, it almost feels like a threat to our literacy or a departure from like this knowledge base that we've worked so hard to build. But it is so necessary. I think we say this almost every episode, but the world is changing at a rapid pace and a lot of financial stability will be based on our ability to adapt to that change and welcome it. And so don't be afraid to make a decision that is temporary and then change your mind. (laughs) That's going to be an ongoing part of the relationship between you and your money as we live in one of the most unstable times in U.S. history. I'm tempted to coin the term financial courage. Oh, there you go. There it is. You need some financial courage. It's not (laughs) necessarily a departure from your understanding. It's really a reaction based on your understanding of what's happening in the world. Right. All right, let's take a quick break, and then we'll be back with two other important conversations. All right. The next conversation you need to have is about the best ways to pay off debt and the timing and urgency of paying off that debt. And I think this is another conversation that needs to be had because of this perfect storm of, one, multiple years of student loan payments being paused for millions of people. 
Two, hyperinflation on consumer goods and the emergence of these kind of buy now, pay later companies that almost act as credit card, credit card alternatives. And then three, just changing views on investing and debt payoff occurring simultaneously. Before there was a prevailing belief that one needed to occur before the other one. And now more people are saying you can absolutely still invest while you still have debt. And I think that there are a lot of people who have worked very hard to pay off debt, whether it's student loans or just consumer debt over the last few years that are coming into a world where their dollar doesn't stretch as far as they hoped it would. And that's disappointing, right? The money that you thought would be going towards investing or other financial goals are, is actually just going towards the same lifestyle that you had while you were paying off debt. Yeah. And then at the same time, there are a lot of people who are actively in debt, but are delaying paying it off because the investment opportunities seem like better places to put their money in the interim. And if it's student loan debt, you know, they're kind of hoping that it will eventually be forgiven. So I wanted to ask you, given all of this that's happening, what kinds of conversations do you think that people who are managing debt should be having? Uh, There are a lot. I Um, I think the first thing I'll say is that I can't even imagine like learning about money in this kind of environment. Oh my goodness, I'd be, it's got to be confusing. I'd be wildly confused. Yeah, um, we didn't have nearly as much stuff being thrown at us. I mean, even though like we were in a bit of a uh, phase of transition, and I'm thinking back to like the post um, economic recession, 2008, 2009. Like it wasn't nearly as like complex and fast paced and complicated and new technologies. Like it's really, really wild right now. So in terms of conversations and paying off debt and, and how to sort of think about that, I think like keeping it general. And, and I think the big one is like, how much is it costing you annually to carry this debt? And I would look at that from a financial standpoint and emotional standpoint. So when we're looking at student loans, for example, is obviously you can calculate. There are a number of calculators uh, like NerdWallet is filled with them. There are tons of websites. Bankrate, I'm sure, has several others. But you can sort through student loan calculators to get a feel for exactly how much it's going to cost you with interest and principles to pay off these student loans given certain timelines. You can adjust that and tweak it as much as you can. But I also want you to think about, uh, and this isn't necessarily a calculation, but it's sort of a gut check. Think about what the emotional cost is and what impact is carrying student loans having on your ability to invest. I think a lot of times when people are carrying debt, especially if it's expensive debt or a large amount of debt, they just find themselves in a position where it's like, I can't invest. I'm not ready to invest or I can't invest enough, right? And as a result, they just really don't have any mechanisms or sort of financial seeds growing on their behalf. And as a result, they miss out on potential growth opportunities. And so it's something to think about, like not only how much is it actually costing you depending on what your payoff schedule is, but what is the emotional cost? What is the debt and the carrying of that debt doing to you to um, impact your appetite for investing? The second one is like, what's your personal timeline for delaying Mm. um, paying off this debt? Uh, I, I know personally a lot of people Uh, And it breaks my heart to think of it because I feel like I'm getting older and I'm sure that a lot of my college and high school, you know, classmates feel the same way that I do. But I distinctly remember having conversations with people who many of them, some are like probably knocking on 50 now because they were older than I am. But they were like planning on having their debt forgiven. Mm -hmm. And as I 
think about them now, like I'm pretty sure it just never happened. Yeah. Right. So they spent upwards of 20 years of their lives working towards this hope and this belief that a certain president was going to come in and these problems were going to go away because right. they spoke about it on the campaign trail. And um, I just, I know that you guys out there that are listening, you have other interests. Some of you may be particularly politically savvy. I would just advise that you do not let your political savvy or interests or beliefs overshadow what we know to be true. Historically, this has not happened. I know people that are talking about it right now. Let's not assume that it's going to happen. Right. Let's just go ahead, assume responsibility for the loan, and pay it off, right? And or create a plan to pay it off. Which leads me to my third recommendation, which is really around having that conversation around whether or not to engage with a debt consolidation company or some form of credit counseling or some type of third party. This stuff can be really heavy. It can be complicated. It can be difficult to navigate all of those things. And so if you're not savvy, you're not comfortable doing that, there are people out there who are willing to do it. uh, And they may do it really at no direct cost to you. They may, if they're able to renegotiate something, they can sort of add it to the balance. Or in some cases, they take a percentage of the savings for you. In some cases, they just charge a flat fee and then they do the work on your behalf. We've got a number of recommendations on our website, on the resources pages. So feel free to check those out. I'll also give you a personal recommendation. You can tell them Julian and Kirsten sent you at studentloanplanner.com. Our friend Travis uh, is excellent and mm-hmm. I believe is dedicated his entire life to this stuff. And so um, Travis Hornsby is his name at Student Loan Planner. Check him out. I think he's a fantastic resource. And if you're looking for someone that just wants to teach you and help you overcome any of the challenges that you're having, figure out what's new, what new legislation. He's also like super up to date on that kind of stuff. I think Travis is uh, one of the best bets out there. Yes. I love the part about kind of picking your own personal timeline for delaying or just deciding how long you're willing to punt. Because to your point, what we've learned is that ignoring any issue doesn't make it go away, right? Even though we'd love for that to be true. I've been ignoring a basket of laundry for about four days and it's still there taunting me. So this is no different. Debt is no different. And these creditors are not your friends. No. I would dare say the government is not your friend. No. Even when they're doing something friendly, like telling you you don't have to pay right now, they're still not your friends. So just remember that and keep a plan in mind that always protects you and your assets and your family and your financial future first without relying on them. I'm I'm rooting for student loan forgiveness for a large amount of people. I'm just naturally skeptical I'm, because it I'm just hasn't enough. happened yet. Yeah, I don't know a single person. Right. Yeah. Again, I'm just telling you. So for those of you who are younger and you're listening, I'm telling you, act like you don't hear it. Like just focus on figuring out a way to pay it off yourself because it will be there like the boogeyman uh, when you're in your 40s and your 50s. And it will get in the way of your ability to do anything that you might be wanting to do, like buy a house, buy a car, you name it. Like it can get it it can be a huge issue. Yeah. Okay, so the last question is, the last conversation is how to think about retirement. And this came up because the other day, one of our friends who was a professional photographer asked a question to his followers on Instagram, and he asked them how much money they thought they needed to have invested or saved before they thought they could retire. And the numbers that came back were so wild to me. They ranged anywhere from $5 million to $10 million. And then there were a few people who were just like, I'll never have enough. 
And it made me sad that so many people have this wildly inflated number and skewed view of what it means to retire. So we wanted to make sure that we covered it as a conversation you need to be having. It's great that we talk about all the things that currently require our attention because they affect today. Things like debt payoff and investing and, you know, life insurance. But it's equally important that we keep the end game in mind and see ourselves as worthy of a life that doesn't center working for money, which is really how I'm defining retirement these days. It's a life full of days that doesn't center me exchanging my labor for money. And so I think you just want to keep a clear picture of a future you that doesn't have to do that 40 to 50 hours a week in order to keep a roof over your head or do things like take midday walks and comfortably wake up without an alarm. You want to keep a clear picture of that version of you at the forefront of your mind. Now, those are my values. You know, I don't want to have to exchange time for money 40 to 50 hours a week, but yours may be totally different. The point is you just want to hold space for that version of you so that you can incorporate the tactics that actually get you there into the fold of your daily, weekly, monthly financial habits. Yeah, no, you make an interesting point. Um, I didn't see that post on Instagram, but I've had a couple of exchanges with people myself just in the last couple of weeks, and many of them are doing really, really well, but they don't know or or have a clear idea of just how well they're doing. Like They're still hustling, they're still grinding, they're still sacrificing it all, and it's not coming from a place of greed. I think it's it's as if they feel like they need need to have it all right now, and I'm like, all right, so you're telling me like having a million dollars saved right now before you're 40 years old in a tax deferred account, you don't feel like you can pull back a little bit, right? Right? You don't think you can enjoy life a little bit. Like I'm not a financial advisor, but unless you're spending $150,000, $200,000 without blinking every single year, right? Like you can probably like take a break. Mm-hmm. Like, and I'm not saying quit your job, right. but you don't necessarily need to continue to focus on saving for retirement. Mm-hmm. Like it's not going to hurt you like it would hurt someone who doesn't have, gosh, even $5,000 saved for retirement. So uh, it's really interesting uh, to your point. But I think there are a lot of reasons why. Um, The first one, I'm just going to say it and I'm not going to get into any detail because it just popped in my mind, but it's just, just the media. The more I learn about the media, the more I understand the role that it plays in shaping the way that people think about money and how much they need and how much is enough and what success looks like. And so that definitely plays a role. I think the second one is the lack of real like role models. <clears throat> I think the second one is the lack of role models people that you can look to to say, wow, these are people who are successfully retired. This is what they've done. This is who I want to be. This is what's changed from when they did it versus what I'm doing it. But a lot of people, I know I certainly didn't, don't have a lot of people in their lives that they can look to and say, yeah, that is a successfully comfortable and they've got a fully funded retirement account like they're good like it's mm-hmm. just not nearly as common so there's not really a blueprint or or a, a way of life or something that they can look to um i think one of the other things that um is important that you alluded to is that there's just a bit of a dated definition around like what retirement is. Mm-hmm. And, and again, it's, it's almost like a, like it's just, it's just a way of life. It's almost like death. Like it's so it's a very all or nothing. It's a, yeah. It's just it, definition. And I would is, also say abstract, right? And like, very abstract. Cause we just yeah. don't really have that many real examples of people. Like most people that I know who are retired are like 
retired, but they're still, you know, working and like working really hard. And so it's like, well, are they retired? It was like, no, they just left their old job. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's it's really, really tough. So all of that to say, there are a number of valid reasons why people avoid the conversations around retirement. Um but the, the, none of them are reasons, I think, that can't be overcome, right? So if you want to find role models, you can find role models. They may not necessarily be in person, but online, there are tons of communities that you can join to engage with people who are serving as really great examples. Um, if Social Security is one of those things that you are unsure of, maybe you think that it's um, not going to be there when you're around, like you can actually go on to the Social Security website at any point, create an account, and then you can actually see how much your literal anticipated payments could be. And I think when you see that, that can actually help you to envision a date, maybe even how much income you can rely on based on how much you've already paid in and so on. Uh, And so whether it's, again, lack of role models, having a flawed definition, or just a lack of clarity around it all, I think there are a lot of resources out there today. It just really requires people to knuckle up, focus, and um, dive in. And I think it'll help clear up some of the confusion or hesitance around planning for retirement. Yeah, I think you're right. I think we're up against a lot of negative news about the path to retirement. But I think that also presents us with an opportunity to define and create our own kind of definitions and meaning for what retirement looks like. I know for us personally, we had to come up with our whole new phrase, cashing out, that we kind of bucket retirement under. And it simply means that we recognize that our money can work harder than we can. We put our money to work and then we walk away from opportunities paid or unpaid that don't serve us on our own terms, right? So I, I think when I when we bring up this conversation about retirement, we're not asking you to solve for retirement in any of these conversations, but they're important to have so you don't forget the ultimate goal of all of this, We were meant to do more than just be worker bees. So a couple of ideas to help you jumpstart a conversation about retirement. You can kind of bucket them into quantitative and qualitative categories. So on the quantitative side, you can assess your current retirement accounts. To Julian's point, make sure that you're not treating your retirement accounts like a debit system. Make sure that you're factoring in compound interest and how those accounts will grow over time. And you can use retirement accounts retirement calculators to help you do that. And then I want you to look at your budget and imagine which expenses could go away if you weren't working. So if you are currently carrying things like childcare expenses, or even like your car maintenance and gas mileage or your insurance, all of those things might not be there as big or as significant in retirement. And I also want you to think of any insights that you glean from these exercises as little conversation starters, right? So again, the goal is not to solve for retirement. The goal is to say things like, hey, did you know we spend $3,500 a year on dry cleaning? That alone could cover two road trips to Hilton Head, right. you know, when we're no longer working. <laughs> that, that is a conversation in and of itself and a good one to have. On the qualitative side, I think it's important to think about your ideal day. Maybe schedule some time to practice what a work optional life looks like. We just took four days off a couple of weeks ago, and it was such a nice reminder of how long the day actually is when you're untethered to a schedule, how much time you have to make a fresh salad or, you know, work on a passion project or learn a new skill. A lot of the things that we did during those four days didn't cost anything at all. And so it's amazing, again, to practice what it looks like in a world where you're not 
constantly chasing consumerism because you're trying to escape the feeling of always being at work. Love it. All right. Um, well, that sounded like a final thought. I know. Have another one? <laughs> I think my final thought is is similar to my it's a it's a continuation of my retirement thought. Mm. But I think when it comes to any of these conversations, conclusive isn't the bar. I think we are so time crunched and attention starved that we've trained ourselves to be hyper efficient, even when it comes to super complex issues. It's easy to think that if you're not solving an issue within a single conversation, then it was a waste of time to even have the conversation or that if a conversation needs to be repeated, it wasn't effective and you've wasted your time. But I want you to remove those expectations and just normalize consistency instead. Talking about money often and imperfectly is better than not talking about it at all. So the point of these conversations is really just to explore the limits and the bounds of your convictions and to ensure that you're not just living life on autopilot or building your financial plan around some old, outdated rules. It's making sure that you are a part of your financial plan and that your interests and desires and wishes are are what your money is actually serving. I love that. Um, my final thoughts, I was... <clears throat> my final thoughts I was thinking about as you were speaking, and I think it... I was reminded of just how many people walk into these with the expectations to come out with a plan, solution, yes. um, and agreement one, 100% by all parties. And and I do think that that's unrealistic. So I'm hoping that anyone who's listening out there who I'm sure we've reminded you of at least two to three things that you still need to have in this most likely estate planning and the conversation about home ownership. Um, but we really want to encourage you to do that. I know it's going to be uncomfortable, uh, but it is so, so important. I can tell you as people who have pretty much overcome the hump of that discomfort, when we talk to other people who've done the same, they tell them that like, you know, those conversations were actually a little easier to have than you might expect. So if that's any comfort, just trust me, like don't keep avoiding it because you're expecting that there's going to be this huge blow up. You might be surprised, whether it's your mother, your father, your brother, sister, cousin, aunt, or your partner, they might actually have been waiting for you to say something. So hopefully that's the case. And if it is the case, send us a note. We'd love to hear about it. Yes. All right. Well, thank you for listening to another episode of the Rich and Regular podcast presented by Success. One conversation that I never get tired of having is the one where I remind you how your ratings and reviews help this show get discovered by the people who need it. So if you like what you heard, please leave us a five-star rating and review, and we will see you next week. 